We are going to take a break from our sermon series in Exodus. We will pick that back up next Sunday. Uh, but today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, it's also available in our uh, church app. There's a sermon listening guide that has the scripture printed and an outline so that you can follow along. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Recently, I came across a very comical article on the phrase, Happy New Year. This is the title of the article. Happy New Year, an illogical, unreasonable Statement. And here was the uh, abstract summary at the beginning of the article. On New Year's Eve, the phrase Happy New Year is said thousands of times, but a close scientific examination of the wording reveals that it makes no logical sense and should be replaced by something else. And then this author went on to describe why Happy New Year's is uh, illogical. And then he said there's two problems. First, we oftentimes say it before the New Year. So when we say Happy New Year, it's not even appropriate because the New Year's not here. But then second, he says, he addresses the word happy and says why that's illogical. Listen to what he says. This phrase, Happy New Year, is said most emphatically, he says, about 10 seconds after midnight right, at a party of some sort, right? That's when it's really said emphatically, and this is what he says about it. But the first 10 seconds of the year aren't nearly a large enough sample size to make any generalization as to the overall mood of the rest of the year. This would be like deciding the winner of a marathon based on who is the closest to the starting line when it begins. A year is 31,557,000 600 seconds long. So based on the initial 10 seconds, you've decided that the remaining 31,557,590 seconds will be happy. 
The odds of this being correct are staggeringly unlikely. So there you go, bah humbug, why we shouldn't say Happy New Year. Well, that's a very unconvincing argument, and it was a spoof of a comical article. But it did make me think, when we say Happy New Year, what do we really mean by that? What is meant by Happy New Year? I've talked to so many people that actually are really excited about saying it this year because they are ready for 2020 to be in the rearview mirror. More than any time recently, it takes on new significance. But there's something about the new year that we almost think that when we magically kind of flip over to a new year, that somehow circumstances and situations are just going to suddenly just get really dreamy and better. So really, when we say Happy New Year, what we really are saying, I hope next year is a happy one, right? Or I hope next year is better than the previous one. Well, that raises the question, what what makes for a happy new year? What really makes for a happy new year? And Ecclesiastes 3 gives us the answer. First, what makes for a happy new year is God's control of the times. God's control of the times. Look at verse 1. For everything, there is a season. I'm not going to sing the song. No worries. This is a popular, popular chapter of Scripture. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then there's this fall, you know, from verses 2 to 8, there's a list of pairs to describe the seasons. All right, so you've got birth, death, and notice that each of these pairs are opposites. Right, birth, death, tear down, build up, weep, laugh, Mourn, dance, speak, don't speak, love, hate, war, peace. Two important observations about verses one through eight. Number one, this is not a list of how you should try to schedule your time. This isn't prescriptive to say, hey, here's a good idea on how to schedule your time over the new year. No, this is just descriptive of the seasons of life. And you may have experienced quite a few of these in 2020. You've had a baby, or you've buried a loved one, or you've shut the doors on a business, or you've started a a new venture, or you've wept uncontrollably in the face of horrendous hardship. Or you've laughed with joy at surprisingly good news. Or you've embraced new relationships, maybe a friendship, maybe engagement. You've kept silent when every part of you wants to speak. And you've had to speak up when you didn't want to speak. And then we've all experienced the extreme pendulum swings of love, and hate in our world, and even more specifically, in our country. So number one observation is these are just seasons that unfold in life. Now here's the second observation. You're not in control of any of these. You're not in control of these seasons. You didn't decide when your baby was going to be born. You didn't decide 
when your loved one was going to pass away. You didn't decide to uh, rip up a garden or you didn't plan to rip up a garden right after you planted it because bugs ate it, right? Or, or you didn't control the circumstances that caused you to weep or laugh or mourn or dance, right? These are all things that unfold from the hand of God. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. God controls the times. Now that leads to the second question is, what's his purpose in controlling the times? What's his purpose in it? If what makes for a happy new year is God's control of the times, the second is God's purpose for the times. Right, what's his purpose in all this? And, and to understand God's purpose you have to understand the human response to God controlling the times. And I would love to stand up here and say, this is just a simple head nod of gratitude where we just nod and say, yes, God controls the times and it's great. That's not the human response. Oftentimes, the human response to God's control of the times is frustration. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes picks up here. Notice what he says. Look at verses 9 and 10. What, has, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What gain is there? All of the times listed in verses 2 through 8 cancel each other out. You notice that? A person is born and a person dies. A garden is planted and then a garden's ripped up. Laughing and dancing turns into weeping and mourning. A really great friendship here one day, gone the next. And then you get to verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is the pinnacle of frustration. What that verse means is that God has planted in you the desire to make sense of the times and God has planted in you the inability to make sense of the times. We want to know, but we can't know why everything is transpiring the way it is. It's the pinnacle of frustration. J.I. Packer writes this, God has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in our own lives. Why is this so frustrating? Because we absolutely hate not being in control. We hate it. And you may say, well, I've gotten to the place where I understand I can't control my circumstances. Like, I've just relinquished that. But if we can't control our circumstances, then our need for control moves to controlling the reason why our circumstances unfold, right? So it's, it's our inability to control the circumstances and then the frustration builds when we, we can't even control the reason for our circumstances. That's out of our grasp. So we find on all fronts that everything is out of our grasp. We desperately want to be in control and we realize we're not, both at the circumstance level and even the reason for it happening, we can't get our hands around. 
We desperately want to be in control. How do we, how do we know that? What's the evidence of our desire and need to be in control? Well, in his book, Fearless, Max Lucado writes about the power fear possesses to turn us into beastly people. Here's what he says. Fear and its twin cousin, anxiety. Fear and anxiety are just twins. Fear turns us into control freaks. For fear and anxiety at its center is a perceived loss of control. When life spins wildly, we grab for a component of life we can manage. Our diet, the tidiness of our home, the armrest of an airplane, or in many cases, people. The more insecure we feel, the meaner we become. We growl and bare our fangs. Why? Because we're bad, in part, but also because we feel cornered. And then he goes on to tell this example, extreme example, of Martin Niemöller. He was a German pastor in the time of Adolf Hitler. And he got the chance to meet Adolf Hitler in 1933 when he went to hear him speak. And after listening to Hitler speak, he went home and his wife said to him, said, so what did you learn? And this is what he said. I discovered that Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Fear releases the tyrant within. The fear and anxiety which we all experience are evidence of our, both our desire to be in control and our desire to be in control of the reason why things are happening. So with that said, what is God's purpose in the times? Knowing that's the human response to his control of the times, then what is God's purpose in the times? Well, look at verse 14 again. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Now here it is. Here's the purpose. So that, so that people fear before him. This word fear, it means awe. It means worship. So what we learn here is that God controls the times of your life so that you will worship him. And God doesn't allow you to understand why everything's happening in your life so that you will worship him. So that you'll worship him. Imagine if God gave you access to the big picture. I mean, imagine if he gave you access to the big picture of why everything was happening in your life, the future, what was going to happen, why it was going to happen, if he did that, you would be essentially sovereign. You would be God. You wouldn't need him anymore. This is the temptation, the first temptation that the serpent brought to our first parents in Genesis chapter three. Remember in Genesis three, God said, don't eat from this tree. The serpent comes along and says, oh, you can eat from this tree, you won't die. And if you eat from it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Let me paraphrase the temptation. 
When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree could make her like God and give her control, she ate from it. The very first temptation of human beings was in the area of control. It was in the area of control. And our first parents believed the lie that they would be better off if they were in control of their lives rather than entrusting their lives to God. The question is, why did God command them not to eat from the tree? You say, well, I, I mean, was this tree diseased? So that the fruit was diseased and it would have been bad for them? Or was there something special about this tree? And the answer is no. This tree was like every other tree in the garden. Beautiful. With luscious fruit. God didn't give our first parents a reason for not eating from that tree because he wanted the only reason that they would not eat from that tree to be because they trusted him. That they trusted him, period. That that would be enough. And it's the same reason why God doesn't allow you to understand why everything happens in your life the way it does. Right? So that you would have to trust him, trust his goodness, trust his being for you. In his Christmas message of 1939, King George VI of England was speaking to the British Commonwealth at a moment in history where there was a ton of uncertainty. In fact, the king's body was racked with cancer. He would later die at the end of that year, but he didn't know any of this, that any of this was going to transpire, and he said these memorable words at this Christmas message. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I might walk safely into the unknown. And he said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you safer than the light and better than the known. Now, what would you rather have? Certainty or the hand of God? Well, our fear and anxiety reveals the answer. We want certainty. We want certainty. So how do you turn from what seems so natural, certainty and control, you know, rather than trusting God and the hand of God? How do we turn from what seems so natural? This brings us to the third point. So what makes for a happy new year? God's control of the times, God's purpose in the times, but finally, God's redemption of the times. God's control of the times is seen throughout the scriptures, but we see it very profoundly in the gospels with the birth, life, and death of Jesus. We saw it at Christmas Eve, but Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. Jesus began his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 by preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. 
when the authorities later in Jesus' life, when he gets to his public ministry, when the authorities try to arrest Jesus, John reports in John chapter 7, no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. God sent Jesus into the world at just the right time to redeem the time. And God was sent into time in the person of Jesus to experience the times that you go through to experience the times that are listed in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 2 through 8. You realize Jesus experienced those times. Birth, death, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing. You know, I, I probably, Jesus probably danced. He probably did. Keeping silent. Speaking. Loss of relationship. Rejection. Betrayal. He experienced all of these seasons, these times. And in every one of these times, he trusted his father. He submitted to his father. He trusted his father Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted in the same way by the serpent, by the devil, as our first parents were tempted in Genesis 3. It was a temptation to take control. Jesus was tempted in the same way in the desert. And yet he submitted to his father. He trusted his father. The Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus would go to the cross, when he was overcome with sorrow, at the death he was about to experience, he persevered and trusted his father. And then when he's hanging on the cross, and as he's hanging on the cross, people were mocking him and saying, if you're God, then why don't you show us? And Jesus remained silent. He submitted to his father. He trusted his father. He experienced it all. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. When we talk about Jesus' sinlessness, Oftentimes we say, well, Jesus never sinned, so he really doesn't understand temptation like we do. And the answer is no, just the opposite. C.S. Lewis makes this point when he says, imagine a man who is walking against a strong wind. And when that wind gets too strong and it overcomes him, he just lays down on the ground. And he says, but that man would never know what it would feel like 10 minutes later to still be walking against that strong wind. Jesus did. He was sinless. He faced the strong wind of temptation and never laid down. So therefore, he knows the strength of temptation better than you and I do and therefore can sympathize when we are faced with temptation and the strength of it. Jesus trusted his Father for you. 
His perfect life of obedience and trust is yours by faith. So that when you experience the temptation, that core temptation of control, you can turn to him and know that he never turned away from his father. He never turned independently to himself. He constantly trusted his father. So when you find yourself full of anxiety and fear over a perceived loss of control, you turn to Jesus, you turn to the one who faced the same seasons and the same times as you and the same temptation as you, but trusted his father. He was never overcome by anxiety. He never stopped trusting his father. And that perfect trust is yours by faith in Christ. He's walked in your shoes and he's come out the other side. And so he says, listen to me and listen to what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter six, verse 25, therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to you. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about anything, about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. What are you anxious about? What are you afraid of as we close out this year and enter a new year? Your answers to those questions will reveal what you are trying to control, what you're attempting to control, and it will, will reveal your perceived loss of control. It's actually a miserable way to live. And there's a better way. Verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 3. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. There is nothing more certain in life than the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and current life of Jesus Christ. He is the most certain person that you have in your life. The role of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus more real and more certain than the person sitting next to you. That he is the only certainty that you need, that your fear and anxiety, which is this attempt to grab control and to grab certainty, that fear and anxiety will never deliver the certainty that your heart needs. Anxiety borrows from the past, anxiety and fear. Borrow from the past and live in the future. They don't live in the present. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and receive the gift from him 
of being present and of being able to live in the present. So, when you say Happy New Year to someone this year, and please do, it's an okay phrase. When you say Happy New Year, remember what makes for a Happy New Year. God's control of the times, his purpose in the times, and his redemption of the times through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our anxiety and our fear. It seems so hard, almost impossible to turn away from anxiety and fear. And yet in the midst of it, we're so thankful that Jesus, you put on flesh, you experienced our seasons and our times, and you never became anxious. And you never feared or were afraid. You constantly trusted your Father and you did that for us. So would you help us to turn to you, to trust your perfect life of obedience and your life of trust? And by your Holy Spirit, would you help us as we close out what's been an incredibly hard year of 2020, as we enter 2021, would this be a year where we turn to you, Jesus, and enjoy the gift of being able to be present and enjoy your gracious and good gifts to us in the present. And Father, would you, by your Spirit, convince our hearts that you're good and that because you're good, we can trust you and live as your children and not as orphans. Fill our hearts now as we close in worship. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.